Roger Platt, and I'm here today with Hamid Mogadon, who's the CEO of Prologis. And I want to have him talk in just a moment about Prologis, and I can give a little background on it. But I think for many folks on the call, just to understand a little bit about his story as a successful entrepreneur and business person in the United States, he came here when he was about 16 years old and immediately was accepted to MIT at age 16, where he graduated uh, three or four years later and then went on to Stanford Business School. He had an extraordinary success against all kinds of odds that are just you know, perhaps unique to folks that are coming from another country. Against all those odds, he started his own company, which I think about two decades later, maybe less, uh, went public. And then he merged with another extraordinarily respected major industrial real estate company after that. So he's really someone that is recognized in the real estate world as kind of a real estate developer's uh, real estate developer and greatly respected both for his own accomplishments in building a massively successful company, but also for his own personal uh, perseverance and his own inspirational capacity to come to this country at a time when Uh, We talk about the immigrant experience in a less than constructive way as someone who has uh, created thousands of thousands of jobs and has has added a great deal to this country. So with that, I hope you'll forgive me for that maybe slightly over-the-top intro, but I did want to just make sure that our our, uh, listeners understood that part of your story as well. Hamid, let's tell them a little bit about um, Prologis. Maybe you can start with that. The new Prologis is a combination of the former Prologis, uh, which was formed in the early 90s and headquartered in Denver, and the company that I founded, co-founded back in the early 80s in 1983, that was called AMB. And the new Prologis owns uh, about just under 700 million square feet of uh, logistics real estate in 20 countries around the world. We are the leader in that industry by uh, by quite a, a large margin and are active in three lines of business, obviously operating properties, collecting rent, and generating income from that activity. The second activity is developing new real estate. Uh, this year we'll probably develop around $2.5 billion of new real estate. And uh, the third line of business is that we have a private capital business whereby we team up uh, with institutional investors to um, develop and or invest in real estate, uh, logistics real estate on a more targeted basis. And the company today controls about $58 billion of assets uh, uh, in 20 countries. Great. Well, that's a very good overview. And I think for uh, some of the folks on the call that aren't terribly knowledgeable about uh, commercial real estate, when you talk about logistics companies, you're talking in part about the warehousing needs of Amazon.com and other big companies that need sort of just-in-time facilities to get their products out. Is that right? Or give us a little sense of that. Yeah, we only own warehouse and distribution properties. That's what we focus in on. And our customers range from very large companies like Walmart and Amazon and others uh, to small companies that may occupy only 20,000 square feet. We have about 3,000 individual buildings, and we serve about 4,000 customers globally. So before we get into specific uh, issues about the intersection of your business and your investment strategy and sustainability and environmental issues, 
Tell us a little bit about why it is that you are so focused on international markets and in particular emerging economies and and sort of how that fits into your general philosophy of being as international as you are. Yeah, we're we're quite global in our operations. I wouldn't say we're particularly focused on emerging economies because we are very active in most of the developed economies in Europe, uh, also Japan. So actually something like 90% of our portfolio is in the more mature economies. You know, it's uh, increasingly an attractive business, and it's one where being global creates competitive advantage because many of our customers, including some of the ones you mentioned, have global needs. And to be able to work with a reliable partner that can deliver high-quality facilities uh, built to international standards in China and in Mexico and in the U.S. and in Europe and many other places on a consistent and reliable basis is of value to them. So that allows us to better serve our customers and as a a result of that generate uh, better returns for our shareholders in the long term. Not all forms of real estate lend themselves to being uh, international because Oftentimes, there aren't advantages to being international, but uh, in our business, there's a pretty significant advantage because all the customers have international operations. Okay. So when you're dealing with either co-investors or I guess I mainly uh, focus on your actual tenants, when you're dealing with tenants that uh, want facilities that are built to international uh, standards and which they are looking for a level of quality that they maybe associate with the United States or parts of the United States, how does that fit into your uh, commitment to meeting very high environmental and sustainability standards in the buildings that you're building? Sure. Um, Standards are very high and usually the leading standards in the market, but I wouldn't say necessarily that the U.S. is the leader in design because some of our buildings in Japan, for example, are six to eight stories, fully ramped, and much more sophisticated uh, with seismic isolation, et cetera, et cetera. They're they're almost more like office buildings than warehouses uh, in their sophistication. So the different standards apply to different markets, but they're usually all in the top, uh, I would say, 5 or 10% of that market's product. And because our, our customers are the leading companies around the world, so they expect to be in those kinds of standards, they're all focused on their own sustainability initiatives. And really, I think the primary reason we're interested in the topic and have been very focused on it for the last decade or so, and our customers are similarly focused on it, is pure economics. That's, that's the only reason, because sustainable buildings are more efficient to operate, the operating expenses offered times are lower than buildings that uh, waste a lot of energy and resources. So whether the bottom line accrues to our customers or to our shareholders, there's a very significant bottom line uh, in addition to the doing good part, which is, of course, important. But there's a very important economic aspect that's favorable, which is the primary reason why we do it. Our buildings end up being worth more as a result of the sustainability features that they have built in them, and they oftentimes cost less to operate. Well, many years ago, people used to tell me that, you know, obviously you hear that Honda or some company that's making super efficient cars is, is, is telling their, their customers, hey, these cars are going to save you money. But many years ago, people in the real estate industry used to say, why would I make a super efficient piece of real estate? Only my customer is going to get the benefit of it. I'm not going to get the additional savings because the tenant is paying for the 
energy or whatever. So it seemed like some people in the real estate industry almost carve out real estate as an industry where you don't have to promise your customer something that's great for them. You just have to have a product that's good for you. Sorry, I'm being a little provocative, but do you, you know what I'm saying about that? That's a very good question. Let me continue um, uh, being even more provocative, perhaps, in answering your question. And that is that real estate historically um, had an agency problem in that a lot of people who were making management and development decisions about properties were not necessarily the people who owned the buildings in the long term. Many of them were merchant developers who would build a building, and as soon as they leased it, they would sell it to an investor, or they went to the bank and borrowed more than 100% of the value of the property, built the building, and hoped that at the end of the day it would be worth more than the, the amount that they borrowed. We're not like that. We own, uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, $58 billion of industrial real estate around the world, and we own these assets for the long term. So their performance in the long term is really, really important. And if we can demonstrate to customers that being in these sustainable buildings is going to cost them less over the long term, some of that translates actually into higher net rents that they're prepared to pay for us. If we just talk about it, of course, they're not willing to pay us any more rent. But if we can demonstrate to them that these sustainability investments that we make in the buildings actually save them money, they're, they're more attracted to those facilities than other facilities. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that some of the more progressive companies won't even lease a building that doesn't have sustainability standard built into it because their requirements are often among the strictest of all potential customers. So the building will end up being worth more at the end of the day because it can generate higher net rents. And the reason it can generate higher net rents is that the tenant cares about its total occupancy cost, which is a combination of rent and operating expenses. And by being more efficient on operating expenses, we can translate some of that benefit into higher rents and higher values. Well, that's great. And I think that's it's both a good primer for some of our listeners about the whole concept of rent being maybe more than just the specific lease uh, expenses, but also, as you say, the overall expenses they have associated with a building. And then you're being able to um, capture some of the delta created by your making their life better. What are some of the ways that you communicate to your shareholders or your shareholders inquire about your uh, sustainability performance? And I mean, certainly feel free to talk first about some actual initiatives if you want to make it specific. But I'm just curious about the broader question, too, of what sorts of inquiries you get from major shareholders or major investors. So I would say that in the last three years, some of the world's largest institutional investors, particularly European investors, led by the Dutch, actually, and now pretty much broadly across Europe, and increasingly in the U.S., these large institutional investors really demand their real estate partners and operators to be very focused on this issue of sustainability. In fact, in many of our investor relations uh, meetings, we don't just talk about the financial performance of the company, but we talk about sustainability. And actually, we talk about uh, governance and corporate social responsibility as well along the same veins, because those are increasingly important to these investors. Let me tell you about some specific initiatives. For example, starting about, again, a decade ago, we started retrofitting all our buildings in terms of lighting. And today, 70% of our portfolio has energy-efficient lighting in it. Lighting is a major expense uh, in, a, in an industrial building. We have now gone through a systematic process of making our roofs cooler. So about 30% of our uh, operating portfolio today has uh, cool roofs 
and it reduces energy consumption by as much as 5%, which is a lot of money in these buildings. So we've been able to, through many of these initiatives, actually decrease uh, the energy consumption in our buildings on a like-for-like basis by about 8% since 2011. We have about 140 megawatts of solar roofed up in nine countries, and we're, uh, that's enough power to, um, to um, service uh, 15,000 average homes every year. So these are, and I can tell you about many others, but these are some of the initiatives that we have ongoing. And the way we communicate about them, which was your initial question, is that we produce a corporate social responsibility report every year. And, and of course, we work with organizations uh, like yours and the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI guidelines, uh, and try to communicate uh, what we're doing uh, to our various constituencies. And do you, um, in some of your own properties where you have uh, your own employees or whatever, do you also have some sustainability strategies there too or things that your employees would see? Or is that or is it more about the – I know also your company, like a lot of REITs, probably doesn't have huge numbers of employees. Well, we have about 1,600 uh, colleagues around the world. Um, oh, okay. You have a lot of employees. Okay. And our headquarters in San Francisco, which I think you visited, is on a historic pier – Pier 1 uh, on the waterfront in San Francisco, and that building was com- completed in the late 90s, which is way before many of these topics were popular. And at the time, uh, it incorporated uh, some of the most sustainable practices. In those days, they didn't talk about sustainability. They talked about green. So, for example, we used San Francisco Bay water in our cooling system uh, and used that to recirculate and cool the building. And many, many other features. It's got solar incorporated into it as well. So um, this has been an area that we've been focused on for a long time, uh, about 15 years in in that case. And that's really the only facility that we own that our people are in. We we also own our Denver headquarters building, and that building has significant sustainability features built into it. But between Denver and San Francisco, those are the only two facilities that we actually own where our offices, other than property management offices, are located. Um, uh, the the other sort of headquarter type offices that we have around the world are oftentimes in multi-tenant buildings owned by other people. And in selecting, obviously, those spaces, we look to sustainability standards that they employ in addition to the quality of the location and the facility itself. So we're focused on this uh, topic uh, in many, many different ways. Well, that's great. So you're you're definitely walking the talk, not only products you're developing, but actually in the uh, buildings that your own employees are in. Let me just ask one. You are definitely walking the talk, Roger. And and I would tell you that um, we do it again. This is a point I really want to emphasize. We do it because it makes economic sense. Not that we're against doing good, but but the primary reason is that we can generate better returns for our shareholders and a better service to our customers. After all, we're in the business of doing that. So sustainability is just another strategy supporting that activity. Well, one of the reasons that's such music to our ears here at the U.S. Green Building Council is that we believe very strongly that a market signal that environmental investments are valuable does more to advance environmental progress than any number of people chaining themselves to trees or any number of conferences or governmental sweating out of particulars of regulatory strategies. Uh, We think it's a very, very big signal when people can do well and do good 
and that that's uh, and and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that feels like your data points are helping us make that case. I guess. Yeah, and I would tell you, and and you know this well, but uh, whatever uh, appreciation investors and customers have for these initiatives today, you know that in ten years they'll have even more of those concerns. And these buildings that we build and own have lifespans of 50, 100 years. So by being ahead of the curve, I think we're positioning ourselves to help with the appreciation of our buildings because I think the stuff that we're talking about will become sort of the established practice for everything, particularly if, uh, you know, through carbon taxes or other initiatives, the total environmental impact of energy consumption is reflected in the price of energy, which I think in 10 years, something like that will happen in most countries, then this becomes even more important than it is today. And we're building a building from from scratch. We might as well build in those benefits and take advantage of those cost savings in the interim. Well, that's great. Well, Hamid, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk with us about this. We value our continued um, partnership with you and your team. And uh, I wish you the best. Thank you, Roger, and uh, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Climate Leaders. Join me next time for more insights from the world's climate experts as we explore the outlook for achieving COP21's bold objectives.